People often wonder what would Jesus truly do? Would he judge? Would he make you feel shame? Or would he simply choose to hold your hand and love you no matter what? When it comes to the Christian faith, people are often split on the issue of abortion. But my guest today, Reverend Katie Zay, has made it a part of her mission to not only bring forth the complicated conversation about abortion, but to show how that conversation pushes us to truly love like Jesus. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in and subscribing. And of course, a very special welcome to my guest today, Reverend Katie Zay. Welcome to We Need to Talk. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Well, I am very moved by all that you do. And you clearly have had an extensive career in ministry over the years, and not just as a minister, but as an author. And you're also the CEO of a nonprofit, which I'm very proud to be on the board of, but you're also a podcast host. But I would love to know what your particular religious upbringing was like and how that shaped what your views regarding religion are today. I love this question. I love talking about faith formation because my faith journey is kind of different in that I didn't grow up in a religious household. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small Southern conservative town. So it was hard not to at least come into contact with evangelical Christianity. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But my family did not participate in it. So it was not something that I grew up with necessarily. But when I was in kind of mid to late elementary school, my maternal grandmother, who I absolutely loved, got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that was a time when she wanted to reconnect with her, her faith as she was looking at the end of her life. And so um, she invited me to go to church with her. And really it was about connecting with her because I didn't often get time alone with my grandmother. Mm. It was less about church to start, but um, I grew really fascinated with what I was hearing and especially the stories about Jesus, because I hadn't really ever heard them before, you know, they were brand new for me and I found it really captivating. Um, and then after my grandmother died, church continued to be a way for me to stay connected to her. And I got immersed more in evangelical culture as I grew up in middle school and high school and, and definitely identified as, as an evangelical Christian. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't anymore, but I'm really grateful for the experience that I had of getting to explore my faith on my own. It was never something that was required of me or expected of me. I really got to just encounter God freely. And I'm really grateful for that. That's incredible. I love that. So what period of your life did you identify as an evangelical Christian? And when did you come out of that? Because, and I know you've heard this term deconstruction and it's a new thing that's really been happening. And it's funny that now we have a phrase for it because I'm like, oh, I feel like I've been deconstructed for quite some time without even knowing what it actually was. And I came out into that mindset and really kind of looking at what my original beliefs were or or kind of what other people thought, specifically in college. I think I was pretty lucky to be around predominantly liberal people growing up. I mean, my parents were pretty liberal in general, but I definitely was exposed to evangelicalism. But what was that journey like for you? And when did you start to kind of exit the evangelical community? 
Yeah, similar to you, it was in college and I didn't have the word for it, but I definitely was deconstructing. And I think it's an ongoing process, but gosh, it's now been 20 years when I think about it, yeah. it's 20 years ago when I started college. And I can remember before I went to school, some of my high school teachers were really warning me against taking religion classes in college because mm. they said they're, it's really going to test your faith. And I just did it anyway. And uh, it was challenging for me really to be confronted with how much I thought I knew and what I actually knew. Mm. Cause I was, I was pretty confident that I knew everything about the Bible and God and all of those things. And then once I started studying theology, theology academically, it became quite clear to me that there was a whole lot that I didn't know about, yeah. about Christian history and how the Bible was constructed. And I really fell in love with it. I think what was difficult for me, and maybe you can relate to this, is I was having this wonderful theological experience in the classroom while I was also trying to figure out how I was going to practice my spirituality. And I didn't have a community of faith practice during that time. It really happened exclusively within the classroom. Mm. And that was hard for me because I felt like, where is my home? Where is my faith home? Because it can't just be in the classroom. Right. Um, and so right. I really struggled with kind of losing some of my community from early in college as I no longer felt comfortable participating in evangelicalism, especially toward the end of that time. But I found my way. It just, yeah. it takes time. It absolutely takes time. And I think that it's frustrating because it can be also a lonely experience. Definitely. It can Definitely be incredibly lonely. lonely. And also because, and I, I talk about this on the show a lot, you know, the church is not known for critical thinking. And so when mm. you start to do that and when you start to ask questions and people aren't taught to do that, you, it's hard to find people that are going through that journey. And I've found people that went through that journey much later in life, like mm -hmm. currently now, you know, mm -hmm. far removed from college and they're going outside of their hometowns or leaving their churches and realizing, oh, literally everything I've been taught is actually wrong or different. <laughs> and it is very scary. Um, but lonely, I feel like, is the, the main word that I can use to describe what that process was like for me and I know for so many other people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It can feel really isolating when you feel like, where, where do I belong? Yeah. 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 What for you throughout the process was one of the most frustrating things that you realized in terms of faith communities and just as you started to really dive into theology, when you looked and you realized, oh, this is it all what I, what I had been originally taught or what I knew, what was the most frustrating aspect for you? I think for me, it was how small God became Oof, in my ooh, yeah. faith formation of God was contained within this very small box. Uh, and the more I studied and the more I realized how much theological diversity there was and how that was an ongoing evolution, especially among different kinds of communities. I mean, I was exposed to white conservative evangelicalism and did not know any other way. And you know, American yeah. <laughs> evangelicalism, yeah. a very particular kind of practice. And once I learned, wow, there are people who are learning what it means to be a follower of Christ or, you know, who are engaged in Christian community who are practicing this in all kinds of different ways. It was frustrating to me that I didn't know 
that I had different options available to me. It sort of felt like you're either in or you're out. Mm. You do it this way or you're, you're not a, you know, a real Christian if you don't practice in this way. And it just leaves so many people out and it really makes God quite small. Yeah, I absolutely have to co-sign that. And I was very surprised by that as well because it was putting God in a box like that. It's like you're trying to control God. You're controlling the entity of God. And it's like, that's not how this works. You know, we we don't control how God moves and, and how he appears in people's lives or even how people get to God. I think there are many paths to God. And I think that it's in my in my time and and understanding how the evangelical mindset is it's kind of egotistical to think that your way truly is the only way and that yeah. is what was frustrating for me is that there were there was no acceptance of um different paths and different ways of getting to god but also just kind of feeling spiritually liberated in a sense and you know i I lean more towards being spiritual than religious, but mm-hmm. I'm very much Jesus follower and I've always believed in God and I never let my experiences or my exposure to that kind of closed-minded mindset affect how my faith was. So how did you not allow what you had known and throughout your deconstructing journey affect your faith personally and keeping your faith? Because I do know a lot of people that after they ended up doing deconstruction, they were like, screw it. I'm not even going to, you know, be involved in the church anymore. I don't want to hear the word Jesus. I'm just going on my way. So how, what was Mm. so strong about your faith that didn't allow you to walk away from it, but just see it in a different way? Well, first I want to say, if you're one of those people, I really feel compassion for you. And I get that for some people, they just cannot find a way to stay. Um, Religious abuse and coercion are, are real things. And I understand there's, there are times when, when walking away is the thing that's most healing. So I do honor that for me, I think it's in part just because I'm really stubborn and I didn't like the fact that these ancient texts that had so much beauty and so many problems mm-hmm. were being weaponized and translated or interpreted in such narrow ways when there's there's so much richness in the text and in these stories that I still find new things, new revelations all the time as I read it. And I thought, am I going to abdicate these beautiful stories and these texts where I find so much power, particularly in the text that we don't often talk about? Yeah. I just refuse to let them go. I think there's still a lot there for me, even as I find the Christian history problematic and the way that people practice it problematic. There's so much beauty there and there's so much that can give us life and point the way to being more just and compassionate. I I just refuse to allow those texts to be, to be co-opted and used in that way. And so for me, it's about showing other people modeling a different way of being a person of faith. There are lots of ways mm-hmm. to do it. Absolutely. I love the flipping uh, flipping the script aspect of that. I think that's important yeah. and I think that's incredible. And I wish that those were the louder voices in the room. 
<laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the way that it is right now. But you are using your voice in so many positive ways. And one of the ways that you are advocating for other people, um, and specifically when it comes to women's rights and abortions rights, you just released a new book called The Complicated Choice. And it really does shine a light, which is a huge point of contention within Christian communities, progressive and evangelical. And I'd love to know that, you know, throughout your career, what conversations led you to be an advocate for pro-choice and supporting people that do have to make that complicated choice when it comes to abortion? Mm-hmm. I love talking about the story because it really informs how I think about it. And that is, for me, this has always been a deeply pastoral, deeply human experience. When I was in seminary, I volunteered at an abortion clinic. I had never been inside one. Mm. I'd walked past them and I'd seen protesters and that would always raise my blood pressure and make me angry. Yeah. But I had never actually experienced going inside or seeing what happened there. And I had done a few trainings actually through RCRC, the organization that I now serve as do you about how to accompany people through making a reproductive decision or experiencing a reproductive loss. Sometimes those are the same things. Yeah. And I thought, well, I really want to practice this. So I need to go and actually experience what it's like inside. So I had this very profound experience of walking into an abortion clinic and feeling what it felt like to be a patient because the protesters assumed that I was there to have an abortion. And I had to wrestle with my own internalized abortion stigma because there was part of me that wanted to say, I'm not here to have an abortion. Why did that matter to me? Why did I care about that? It said a lot about how I actually felt about abortion that I had to wrestle with. So that happened. And then within the clinic, I saw the most sacred, beautiful, holy work happening. I saw the clinic staff being soaked and the doctors and nurses being so caring and loving to people at a time when they were feeling so vulnerable Mm -hmm. and caring for them so beautifully. And I ended up volunteering actually in the procedure room and accompanying people through their procedures, Wow, which was a very awkward, holy thing because they were strangers. I was a stranger and yet they were letting me in and allowing me to simply hold presence for them so that they didn't feel quite as alone through that. And I just, it was a profoundly holy experience for me that I can't really articulate other than I knew at that moment that this was what I needed to do. I needed to find a way to bridge these worlds because the religious people were the ones outside and the people doing the holy work were the ones inside. And I was somebody who could bridge those two things. So for me, it's always been deeply pastoral. It's always been deeply about people who are impacted. Um, I think the ways that we talk about abortion can often feel very abstract, but the reality is it always happens within the context of a person's full life as with any human experience. And so for me, really humanizing the people who have abortions is central to my work. And that's what I do in the book, A Complicated Choice, is tell some of those stories of the people who are impacted by abortion and and the barriers to abortion care that exist for so many people, especially right now. Yeah. I love your view on that and that you put yourself in that position to experience it because I am a firm believer that if people are able to literally put themselves into someone else's shoes, then empathy, I don't know how empathy can't just naturally happen. And I think that goes for anything that goes for abortion, that goes for racial reconciliation, that goes for homelessness, for poverty, things like that. You truly can't 
get to a point. I mean, I think some people naturally just have hearts where they want to help others, right? But for the ones mm-hmm. that we're trying to reach to get to understand, it's almost like the only way that you actually will be able to understand is if you go through it. And I love that even though you didn't go in there to have an abortion, you went in there and experienced it. And I love the phrase that you used, holy work, because, and you kind of answered that, but my question is, how have you justified your position on abortion as a person of faith, given how so many Christians, and specifically conservative Christians, view that as like the non-negotiable thing? Like if you're a Christian, you do not support abortion. Yeah, there are couple of parts to that that are important to unpack. I think for me, what I found is I'm actually not very good debater. <laughs> I'm really not good at arguing about this. Um, it's not my skill set, And I've found that my energy isn't well spent in trying to convince anyone that they're right you. or wrong about this issue, no, because it's just honestly not, I don't feel like that's my calling. And I hope that that doesn't seem like a I'm circling around or skirting around the the question. Not at all. I think everybody has different strengths. Like for me, you know, I consider myself an educating activist, but I'm not the type of person that go out in the field. I don't want to be around a bunch of people protesting for things. Like I would rather have conversations. I think everybody just approaches things in a different way. So arguing is not your thing. That's totally fine. Yeah. (laughs) And I think sometimes in our activist spaces, um, and maybe this is your experience too, there is almost this pressure that everybody, um, approach it like a fight all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I've found that I tried to do that for a long time and I tried to argue it. And I definitely have convictions about, you know, I think we all have, um, the divine within us. I think the divine guides, all of us in making sacred decisions about our bodies and our families and our futures, and that every person has the moral capacity to do that. You know, that's very central to my theological understanding of this issue. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it's much more about the model of Jesus and how he accompanied people, healed people, held space for people at their most vulnerable moments. And I think when I think about where Jesus would show up at an abortion clinic, and I talk about this, he would be the clinic escort. He'd be the one taking people inside, or he would be the one in the, in the recovery room, caring for people and their bodies. I wouldn't see him joining the protesters. I don't think that that's where he would show up. So for me, that's how I think about the work, you know, as a follower of Jesus. I think on the, if you're a Christian, then, then you must be anti-abortion or pro-life. However, you want to talk about it. I think it is really important regardless of your personal beliefs about it to understand how abortion has been strategically used politically for decades, uh, to maintain political power among white conservative Christian cisgender straight men mm-hmm. in power. And really to, to see, again, thinking about our own personal views is so important. And I really do, you know, encourage people to think about what makes you uncomfortable about abortion and what you feel about it. You know, it's, there's a lot there to unpack, but to understand politically how it's been used, that Mm -hmm. there is a really powerful voting block created around abortion in the 1970s, going into the 1980s to maintain political power among conservatives. It's never really been about preserving life. It's never been about right. you know, honoring right. people who can get pregnant. Like it really has been a way to maintain power and Absolutely. use that way. And for Christianity be, to be weaponized around it. And we're just seeing how successful it's been, especially in the moment that we're in right now. So understanding a little bit of that history. And there are people who do that work 
much better than I do, but um, <laughs> folks who study things like white Christian nationalism, for example, mm. will, will tell the story of how abortion became the most successful wedge issues for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, just as you're speaking on this, um, that I think people also don't realize is that one of the Republican conservative talking points also when it comes to abortion is a way for them to act as if they care about people of color, because people of mm. color naturally, statistically, do have more abortions. But And I know you've talked a little bit about this, but I would love for you to shed a little bit more light on this topic for people, because when it comes to reproductive justice specifically, it really hasn't been extended to people of color, but specifically the black community, the way it has for white women. So I would just love for you to talk a little bit about that, because it's something that I do get heated about, but I know that you also have had experience in, in having conversations about that as well. For sure. I would love to take just a minute to explain what the reproductive justice framework is for folks who yeah, might not know do. it or have heard it, but don't know the tenets of it. And I'm, you know, indebted to and stood at the feet of Black women who created this framework in the 1990s in response to the mainstream, predominantly white reproductive rights movement that was so focused on legal access to abortion. Black women said that does not encompass our reproductive experiences. It's not simply about having legal access to a procedure. It's about how do we, how do we thrive? How do we actually have options to create our families the way that we want to or not? And how yeah. do we then have the support that we need to raise our, our families, our children in safe and healthy environments? So those are the tenets. It's the right to have children, the right not to have children, and the right to raise your children in safe and healthy environments, which is a much more holistic way of talking about our reproductive lives. It's not about these, these moments. It's about creating lives of abundance where everybody can thrive. And that requires a lot more than legal access to abortion. That requires yeah. all kinds of social support. Um, and also reckoning with the centuries of reproductive oppression against black women and how black women have been denied their reproductive freedom in lots of different ways, not only around access to abortion, but around the ability to procreate period. You know, we look at forced sterilization of black mm. women or in drug sentencing when black women have been forced to do long-term contraceptives to keep them from having the children that they want. All of that yeah. There can't be reproductive justice when there's just legal access to abortion. It's got to be a much more holistic look at, mm -hmm. again, how, how everyone can thrive. And I should also mention the rise of maternal mortality among Black women in this country is something that we really have to reckon with. Like Regardless of your class, education, background, across the board, Black women, I think, are twice as likely to die as yeah, white to women. Die through, yeah, 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 absolutely. That is reproductive injustice that, that we have to look at. So it's a much more complex, holistic frame, but I think reproductive justice invites us all to the table in a way that just focusing on abortion access does not. Yeah. Um, so it's central to it, but it's not the only part. Yeah, absolutely. I think just in listening to you say all of that, what I've realized when it comes to abortion, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, it's just, there's a very reductive view of it. It's truly just a black and white thing for people and some people even so callously reduce it to murdering babies or keeping them alive when it's so 
much more than that. And when you approach things, something as complicated as abortion like that, you're truly removing the personal story from that situation. And I love that you talk about, you know, abortion happens in the context of a, a full person's life and their story. But have you been successful in trying to get people to hear the complexity of the decision of having abortion? Or are they just so blinded by it that it's like, nope, I'm, I'm pro-life and that's it. I think that there are, there are some people who no matter what data or stories you put in front of them are, are going to stay steadfast in their views. I do think it's interesting that there are people who identify as pro-life who have abortions. I think that most of us don't expect to need an abortion until we need one. Yeah. And one thing that you'll hear abortion providers talk about is sometimes they will see the people protesting on their tables needing an abortion. And then they go right back out to protesting the next wow. week. So that doesn't surprise me. Sadly, that doesn't surprise me, but still. Right, but man. it's interesting how we, we find a way to justify our own, our own decision, our own mm-hmm. abortion, but not for everybody else, which nope. is really, really fascinating to me. I think what, when I think about who I can influence, I think predominantly of white progressive Christians. I mean, that's really who I can speak to because mm-hmm. of my background. And I think what I've encountered a lot is this idea that especially white women will say, well, I would never, I would never have an abortion, but I wouldn't stop someone else from having one. And that points to a lot of internalized abortion stigma that we have to recognize is there. It's not our fault that it's there. It's part of living in this culture, just like internalizing racism and sexism and all those other things, For sure, but it is our responsibility to identify it and work to dismantle it and replace it with compassion. So what I hope to do is help people become more thoughtful about the ways that they think and talk about abortion that isn't abstract, that isn't like this is for someone else and not for me, but actually this impacts all of us. And you truly Mm -hmm. do not know what you would do until you are confronted with that situation, just like you were saying before. So just and, and compassion does not require us to feel someone else's feelings. It really is just about centering the person impacted and listening to what it is they need. So my hope is to is to help people who might already identify as pro-choice politically, but have a hard time articulating it from their faith perspective or feel uncomfortable with the issue when it comes down to people they care about or themselves mm-hmm. to really expand their heart space around this so that they can become more vocal about it and start practicing talking about this with people they love and within their faith communities, because there's a lot of silencing, even among the most progressive congregations about this issue. And so yeah. people often don't feel like they can talk about it. And yeah. my fear is then those folks who really do need to talk about their complicated feelings or feelings of loss, don't have anywhere to go. And they end up going to anti-abortion ministries because they're the only ones offering yeah. post-abortion support. And then they get pulled into becoming an anti-abortion activist. Yeah, which leads me to my next question because, you know, a lot of people specifically in faith-based communities, progressive or evangelical, there is a a level of fear, obviously, because of, of what you've been taught and how you grew up or even, you know, what you believe currently, but there's a fear of like how God will view them and, you know, mm-hmm. if they're going to hell and, and, and things like that. So how have you as a spiritual leader 
given support to people who have had abortions or maybe considering having an abortion, but they're really worried about how specifically God will view them or what Jesus will think of them or just how they are able to reconcile that with their own faith? Yes. I think that the the procedure room and after is a time when these kinds of theological questions come up for people, even if they weren't raised in Mm -hmm. an anti-abortion faith community. I think again, because the messaging of the anti-abortion movement is so insidious and we see it everywhere. It's on those, you know, signs that are outside the abortion clinics, we all absorb them. And I think that because there can be a mixture of feelings during and after an abortion, which is usually the predominant feeling people have is relief, honestly. Yeah but there might be some sadness mixed in. And I think sometimes when we have an emotional experience that's difficult, we start wondering if the reason that we're feeling that way is because we did something wrong. And I don't think that's even specific to abortion. I think there are lots of difficult decisions that we have to make about our lives that we know is the right for us, but there's still loss. There's still sadness. You know, think about the breakup of someone you love, but you know, you can't stay in a relationship, right? Like there's a mix of feelings. We're, we're complicated as human beings. We can have a complicated emotional life. But I think again, because of the theological framing, those questions often come out in God language. Will God mm-hmm. punish me? Did I kill my baby? These kinds of things are come up and they're very deeply emotional questions. Yeah. And I think any of us can provide the spiritual support that that person needs. I don't, you don't have to be a minister. You don't even have to be a person of faith. I think simply just affirming for people that you're loved. God accompanies us through everything. Everything. And what I loved about writing this book was talking to people who really experience God in profound ways during their abortion procedures. They really felt that presence. Like they had to just surrender and they felt Mm. God's presence surrounding them and holding them with love and compassion, whether that was just a a presence they felt or through the people who served them, you know? So I think affirming to people like, you know, what's best for you and it's okay for you to feel sad. It's okay for you to grieve. And that doesn't mean that you made the wrong decision. And it definitely doesn't mean that God doesn't love you because God is love. Absolutely. I love that. In your book, is there a particular story that resonated with you the most? I get asked this question so much and I feel like it, I feel like it changes a lot depending on the context of the conversation that I'm having. So yes, there's, I'm going to, I'm going to share about one because of what I just shared. There's a young woman from Texas named Kawanda in the book who I, she just was so full of God's love. When I talked to her, she just really moved me in her, um, in her personal story that had a lot of violence and a lot of injustice. Um, she was a young person who had to, um, you know, find support to get the abortion that she needed. She was in a really abusive relationship and she was estranged from her family at the time, Mm. but her, her ability to kind of become this advocate in her community for not just reproductive justice, but all kinds of justice issues. And she said something in the book, I'm going to maybe misquote her, but God is so tired of the things that keep us in chains. Mm. And I just, I just love that. She's like, I'm here to proclaim liberation, like in the name of God, you know? And she says, my abortion was a blessing. My abortion was a blessing for me. It saved her life. 
And I think that that's really profound. We don't, even those who of us who might be the most pro-choice, we don't often talk in the language of how abortion can save lives and bless people. But she really helped teach me that. And I'm really, really grateful for her. And I can't wait to watch her continue to shine because she's, she has a very unique calling in the world and I just adore her. I love that. I love that. Who is your intended audience for this book and who are you hoping will stumble upon it that maybe it's not, you know, maybe they wouldn't normally, you know, pick the book up or read it, but who would you like to read it if it's not, you know, if they're not naturally going to, who would you like to? When I wrote this book, I did not know the political moment that would we would be in. I, mm. I didn't know. I could have probably guessed that we would be close to this time when there's a flurry of anti-abortion bills all across the country in places like Texas, where abortion is basically inaccessible for people now because of SB8. And also when the Supreme Court, which is now a conservative majority, is yeah. poised to, to rule on uh, a case that could have really big implications for abortion access around the country. I do think that more people are paying attention in a way that they weren't before. And so I think that in in a weird way that this book came out at the right time, because this conversation is on, is top of mind for a lot of people. And we're, we're going to start really seeing the impacts even more of the restrictions on abortion in the months to come. Abortion's always been inaccessible for a lot of people, um, but it's going to, it's going to get a lot more it's going to get a lot more intense in the coming months. So that being said, two audiences for the book. One is for people who identify as Christian who've had abortions and maybe don't feel like they've seen their story represented mm. in the public narratives that are shared. I really hope that people can find some healing as they reflect on some of the scripture I share, but also the, the people's stories as they talk about their own spiritual journeys. I really hope it helps to break the isolation that a lot of people feel that we were talking about earlier. So that's one audience. We're but primarily it's for people who have not experienced abortion personally, who maybe haven't thought about it in a more nuanced way or want to be more thoughtful about it, especially if they identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. So I hope that people will, will pick it up and just practice with me what it means to hold stories and to listen and to identify those points where we might feel uncomfortable about abortion and, and work through that, work through those feelings and, and say, you know what, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold compassionate space for this. I'm going to listen to this person who is impacted and maybe be open to your mind and heart being changed around how you feel about it. I love that. Katie, I love everything that you're doing. I love what you stand for and I appreciate your voice. Can you let everyone know where they can follow you, find your book, and also let them know a little bit about Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice as well? Absolutely. So you can find me on all the platforms at Katie Zay. I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes because I have a weird spelling. (laughs) Um, You can find my book, A Complicated Choice, Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement, anywhere books are sold. Obviously support your independent bookstore. Yes, always. (laughs) always. That would be my preference for sure. Um, If you go to the Broadleaf website, that's my publisher. There's also a free discussion reflection guide that you can download. and, And if you want to do a book, discussion. You can find that there. Um, you asked me to share about RCRC. So you can find RCRC, the Religious Coalition Free Practice Choice at rcrc.org. You can follow us at rcrchoice. There's lots of ways for you to get involved with our programs. We have a free 
Religion and Repro Learning Center. So there are self-paced courses and public webinars if you wanna learn more about these kinds of topics at the intersection of faith and our reproductive lives. We also have a new website we just launched called, with our partners, Faith and Women, called Abortions Welcome. That's specifically for people who want a spiritual companion before, during, and after abortion. So lots of ways to get involved. We'd love for you to follow us, to reach out to us. Um, and you can find us like anywhere on the internet. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Thank you for having me. It's just been wonderful. And to the listeners, thank you for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. Make sure you like, comment, share, review, and most importantly, subscribe. Thank you to Stephen James, our theme song writer and producer. And remember, everything begins with a conversation.